Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. We have to learn not to turn to external authority for our operating orders, as it were, but to our own inner light and our own sense of inner guidance. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 327. Today, we're talking about peace, community, and values with Parker Palmer. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confidence kids. Welcome back to the Mindful Mama podcast. This is such a cool episode for you to join in on. It's just lovely. So Parker is the founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal. And he's a writer, he's a teacher, he's an activist who focuses on issues in, in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's the author of 10 books, including several award-winning titles that have sold near a million copies and been translated into 10 languages. The most recent is On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and uh, Getting Old. So 
I'm so excited for you to join me at the table as I talk to Parker. We're going to talk about filling human need and the importance of community and how can we look for a community that aligns with our values. So I felt like this episode, it was important to release it in a time, you know, where we're at the end of the year and we're thinking about our our values and taking stock. And, and I think this episode will really help you to do that, really kind of think about what's really, really important to you. So I hope that this episode really does that for you, dear listener. Okay, now join me at the table as I talk to Parker Palmer. I'm looking forward to talking to you and I want to, you know, I've told you, I want to talk to you about community and, you know, as we're moving, hopefully out of this time of COVID, I think it's so, so important. But before we dive into that, I'm really interested in kind of your own spiritual journey. Like you look at, you know, you've talked, written a lot about it and you, you came up in the Quaker tradition, right? And I, and as for me, as a person who lives in Northern Delaware, I'm real familiar with the Quaker tradition. We've got Quaker meeting houses all around us. You know, it's basically, you know, but uh, but I don't think everybody is. And so I was wondering if maybe you could just like describe that tradition a little bit and, and what drew you to it. I have to tell you, Hunter, that I didn't discover Quakers until I was about 35 years old. So I was raised in the mainline Protestant tradition in the Methodist church specifically. And I belonged to Episcopal and congregational congregations over time. I went to theological seminary in New York, Union Seminary for a year. I studied religion as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student at Berkeley. And at Berkeley in the 60s, I was exposed to a wide range of other spiritual forms, including Buddhism. But um, when I was about 35, my wife, our three kids, and I moved to a Quaker living learning community, an adult study center, which was organized like an ashram or a monastery or, a, or an intentional community, but with couples and families and about 80 people living together in a daily round of, of a worship, Quaker style and silent worship and um, physical work and eating meals together and studying nonviolent social change and reaching out to the larger world with uh, nonviolent action of various sorts. And I spent 11 years there as Dean of Studies and got immersed in the Quaker tradition. It's a tradition that began in the 17th century in England um, as an effort to recover the notion that human beings had direct access to the divine. What, however you want to name it, that your access to the holy, to the sacred, to the divine uh, didn't have to be mediated by a, an ordained person or a religious professional of some sort. In Quaker parlance, uh, that means every human being has an inner light, an inner teacher. And in, in, some, in some formulations, every human being has that of God within him or herself. So there is this heavy reliance on inner guidance that ultimately your best teacher is yourself. And we have to learn not to turn to external authority for our operating orders, as it were, but to our own inner light and our own sense of inner guidance. But at the same time, Quakers believe profoundly in the power of community. 
And, and in fact, the, the basic frame of Quakerism and everything that Quakers do is to hold this paradox between the solitude in which you seek inward guidance and the community in which you have a chance to check and correct whatever you think you're hearing from within. Because as most grown-ups know, mm -hmm. the voices within us are various and they cover a wide range. There's a voice of ego, there's a voice of greed. Not every voice is that of the inner teacher. And so um, exploring these things in community, not a community that tells you what to believe, but a community that helps you sort and sift what you think you're hearing from within. Those are kind of the twin pillars of Quaker faith and practice. And um, there's lots more to say, yeah. uh, but uh, that's it in a nutshell. It, it's kind of, it's a, I imagine in the 17th century anyway, that's pretty subversive because at that point there was like, you know, it's like do as the church says, right? You know, that's that, the, that whole thing. So this whole idea that everyone has an inner light and to not be necessarily respecting authority, that's pretty big old subversive thing to, to say. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's very upstream and it remains that way to this day. Another tenet of Quakerism is nonviolence. So Quakers don't take what truth they know and try to impose it on anybody. Um, one of the reasons there are very few Quakers in the world compared to other traditions is that Quakers do not proselytize. They don't try to convince people to join them. They just do their thing. And if folks are drawn to them, then people can decide whether or not that's their that's their path. But it is a subversive path. I mean, I think as soon as you say nonviolence, you're already swimming upstream in a in a, a culture that uses violence in one way or another to achieve a lot of things. And for Quakers, violence happens on very subtle levels. It's it's not just dropping bombs or shooting bullets. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a quick example. In a Quaker meeting for business, when decisions are being made by the Quaker meeting, which is the Quaker word for congregation or local church, uh, they never vote because they believe that when 51% of the people can tell 49% of the people where to get off, violence has been done to the statistical minority. Um, and so we reach decisions by consensus, which sometimes means talking a long time uh, before the, the group can join in unity around the rightness or wisdom of a particular decision. It's a slow process. It's a painstaking process. But historically, it's had some remarkable outcomes. For example, and just to give one example, Quakers were the first religious community in the United States to agree to free their slaves. Mm -hmm. And that happened 80 years before the Civil War was fought. It took 20 years for them to get there. But when people say, gosh, that's a slow process, I always say, well, how about getting 80 years ahead of the mm -hmm. Civil War to do to take corrective action against America's original sin yeah. of enslaving other human beings. So it's a really interesting tradition for me. I joined it partly because 
I was fascinated with the inner journey, partly because I was fascinated with the various shapes and forms of community, and partly because I was deeply committed to positive social change in a nonviolent mode. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. As parents, we know that there are so many things in life that we have to compromise on. But when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that doctor that doesn't really listen to you. Instead, check out ZocDoc. This is a place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, there's no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you actually know about. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash mindful and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash mindful. ZocDoc.com slash mindful. The nonviolent piece speaks to me hugely, um, and I love the idea that everyone has an inner light because for me, as a, I grew up um, agnostic, I grew up without a religion, and, and I've observed religions from the outside most of, for most of my life and seen, and I, I sometimes feel very frustrated with the idea of original sin, that this is like badness, this original badness inside. And so I'm very drawn to the idea instead that everyone has an original light inside. I, I do truly believe that. I mean, again, I guess my term for that would be like, everybody has a Buddha nature inside, but this idea of nonviolence and taking that into your life. And it sounds very simple, right? Like nonviolence. Uh, yeah, sure. Great. But you're right. Like nonviolence is weaved into our culture in so many ways. Recently, I heard someone speak and we, we take this idea of nonviolence into parenting too. And recently I heard someone speak about spanking as, um, state sanctioned domestic violence. And I thought, 
Yes, that's true. Like that's like legal domestic violence. It's crazy to think about it that way, but that that really really resonated with me and this idea though of taking nonviolence to this this really these really subtle levels of the of the vote and everything. I think that's fascinating. So when you got to the into this Quaker tradition, I'm curious, like, how old were your kids <laughs> and, and did, did it affect the way you parented them? <laughs> yeah, it definitely did. Um, they were grade school age. I think one was in kindergarten and another was, uh, then there was one in maybe uh, second grade and one in third or fourth grade. So they were quite young. And when we moved there, um, and we lived there for 11 years. So they did a lot of their growing up there as in, in, in their younger years. Um, we suddenly found ourselves in a family of 80 people. I mean, this, is a, this was a, a very tight and close form of community with communal meals every day, silent Quaker worship in the morning, physical work during the day, and a full day a week just to keep up the grounds of this uh, 30, 40-acre place with a lot of buildings on it, 80 folks in residence, um, et cetera, et cetera. It was also an e a radical economic model in that everyone who worked there made the same base salary. If you had kids, you got a slight increment per child. But I had a PhD from Berkeley. I was there as Dean of Studies in the, in the academic program. And I made the same base salary as an 18 year old who came, into the, who came to Pendle Hill not knowing what to do after high school uh, and came to work in the kitchen or work in the garden because part of the Quaker testimony is radical equality between all human beings. Mm -hmm. And based on that original, that principle of everyone has an inner light. Um, and so my kids um, were greatly impacted by the fact that suddenly they're in a, a place where there's a lot of adults who care about them. And when I was busy or when my wife was busy, she also taught there. Um, there would always be adults looking after our children, not, not by assignment, not because we hired them to sit, but because we were in community together. And in community like this, you care for each other. The walls are down, the distinctions disappear. Um, and, and something more like Martin Luther King Jr.'s beloved community begins to happen. Um, and, and so we were living into that aspiration. My kids also, you know, um, got a sense that there are a whole lot of different ways to live because they were going to public schools in the area mm -hmm. where people were living, you know, kids were coming from pretty affluent homes um, in the suburbs of uh, Philadelphia, Wallingford, Pennsylvania is the location. And, you know, they all had their own TV and they all had uh, their own sports equipment and they all had their own lawnmowers and et cetera, et cetera, just normal uh, suburban life. But at Pendle Hill, we were sharing these things in common. Um, communal property was more important than personal individual property. It was simple living, but it was not, uh, it was not stressful. It was very comfortable, but it was simple living. And while my kids you know, balked at it at times, and I think especially in, in junior high and high school, sometimes felt a little strange 
compared mm -hmm. to what was going on among their peers. When I talked to them down the road and said, you know, so what did you get from Pendle Hill? They said, well, a lot of companionship in a really big and warm family and the knowledge that we have choices to make about how we want to live our lives. It isn't just one size fits all. And I, and I love the idea of kids growing up with the notion that there are choices that they can make, economic choices, lifestyle choices, choices in who they hang out with and what they care about. Um, and and they, get that, they got that in our case from living in, a, in this really kind of dynamic environment with people who had been actively involved in the anti-war movement or actively involved in the struggle for racial justice, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they got an incredible sense of community. I mean, that's exactly what that's exactly what we're missing now. I mean, I can I can kind of think that like we've had a taste of some things like that. We've gone on um, a number of family retreats in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh at the Blue Cliff Monastery, and you know, there's 200 people all around practicing mindfulness, eating together in the kitchens, and there's no TVs and none of that stuff. We're all just, people are playing music out in the, you know, out in the under a tree and that's the, the entertainment or we've been skits for each other. And, and it might, it sounds like my, you know, it's funny if I describe it to my kids now, they would probably had not having any personal experience with it. They'd be like, uh, and they'd roll their eyes at me, but they loved it. They had so much fun, you know? And, um, and this is like, the, I mean, I, I, I get this kind of poignant kind of sense of like a little bit of sense of longing as you talk about this right now, because, you know, as we record this, like my family, you know, we've only been able to hang out with people outside six feet away and, and my kids can't go to school in the same way they used to go to school. And they used to go to a, have a bus stop where they met all their friends at the end of the day. And, and all of it's gone. Yeah, and it's, it's tough. just it's such a, tough. it's so heartbreaking. Um, it is. Yeah. I mean, I think that we don't, maybe we didn't, we didn't really, you know, in the United States anyway, we're so set on independence you know we're like i am an independent person i have autonomy but i think that's like we're this pandemic is maybe making us realize that that's not really true i hope so um you know and i think there's evidence on both sides of that question uh, and that the struggle in the united states goes on i think you know early on historically lots of people have written and spoken about this <clears throat> and early on, we we were formed by this drive for independence, for individualism, and by a drive for communities of, of mutual care and support. Lots of stuff in the United States couldn't have happened without community, including the, the settlement of the ever-moving westward frontier, and lots of things wouldn't have happened without the kind of rugged individualism that allowed people to take risks. But I think we mythologize that rugged individualism because most of those people were interdependent with folks who were traveling with them in, in one way or another. Um, but I think 
we we've we have uh, part of our country or part of our culture <clears throat> has developed a devolved sense of what democracy is all about. So you get people who apparently believe that what democracy means is simply I can do anything I want and nobody can tell me otherwise. We see that as part of the pandemic and as part of the response to the pandemic, even if it's against all public health best practices and even if it endangers the rest of us, I can do anything I want and nobody can tell me otherwise. And then a flag gets waved over that. But the truth is that a democracy is about both independence and interdependence. And it's about acknowledging that we need one another um, and, and that the government itself can't operate without us in collaboration in the most creative ways possible. It's so easy to forget, and I'm not sure why, uh, because these words get quoted a lot, it's so easy to forget that this country was founded on a principle called we the people. Uh, it didn't say mm -hmm. me the citizen or <laughs> me the leader. Mm -hmm. It was we the people of the United States do hereby declare and establish. Um, and that, that we is to be taken very seriously. And then the next question is, who do we mean when we say we? I, I learned years ago from a writer who, or a speaker, I can't remember, who's, who said, you can learn a lot about a person by finding out what they mean when they say we. Mm. Uh, who, are, who are we identifying with? And as a white man, one of the things I've learned through my work in social change over a number of years is that I and other white people often say we when we mean white people. And we're not thinking about all of the people of color, for example, who are excluded from some of the statements we make about the opportunities we have or the freedoms we have or the security and safety we have. You know, we're thinking about our own tribe. And so this is a time of huge learning. And there, there is good news. I agree with you on that coming out of this pandemic, this, this sense that we are interdependent, um, not only with each other, but with the natural world, because you know we're now on the edge of so many forms of ecological extinction. Well, we've walked past that edge in so many areas, but we're now realizing that we have to take the other seriously, whether it's people who look, talk, believe differently from us, or whether it's nature over which we've thought we had domination, but we have to act in collaboration. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. 
Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you see this as like kind of a... um in some ways, like a conflict between that, like ego, right. That drive to, for self-preservation versus, versus that inner teacher, you know, you talked about like earlier about distinguishing between the voice of the ego and the voice of that inner teacher. Do you see, do you see it as that? Yeah, I do Hunter. Um, I mean, I think the, you know, the ego always plays a big role in, in our lives, doesn't it? And it's one of the those inner voices that has to be checked and corrected. And I also think, just to, as a little side note, that it's we need, I need to be cautious when I talk about the problems posed by ego, because a, a healthy ego is necessary to function well in the world. Yeah. And I know that lots of people, including lots of women, have historically been deprived of a healthy ego. Um, this society was was you know in, in many ways structured um, to uh, boost the ego of white educated males who owned land. Um, that was who the founders were, and that was what was built into the DNA of our of our culture. And so we have to care about everybody having that kind of ego strength, but to you know to have good lives. Um, but the ego is exactly that which, which, for example, wants to make me say, I've achieved all of this and I've achieved it by myself. You know, I'm 82 years old. I've written 10 books. I've sold 2 million of them. I've made my living as an independent writer for the last 40 years. Look what I've done. But I haven't done it by myself. I, ha- I have had more partners and collaborators, including my readers, then I can begin to count. Nobody does it by themselves. And so while we need the strength in a writer's case to speak your voice, to put it on paper, to take the slings and arrows that come from people who don't like what you're saying, um, it's your chance to tell your truth and to perhaps make a positive impact by doing that. We, of course, we, we have that individual responsibility if that's the calling that we feel, you know, the, the soul's imperative that we feel. But nobody does it by themselves, even if they have that drive. It takes millions of collaborators, you know, to make something good happen. And I'll just add one more note to that, because this is one of the things I learned in community. We have to remember that small things count. 
I think I think one of the learnings from for people in this pandemic is that small acts of kindness count big time. You know, to to extend a helping hand to pull someone out of despair, or at least give them a sense that they're being companioned on a very difficult journey. So when I talk about our responsibility to each other, I'm not simply talking in big macro terms. I'm, I'm talking about what's within, as one of my friends says, what's within three feet or so of you? You know, he says, you can't change the world, but you can change what's within three feet or so. And that includes your friends, your partner, your partners in life and work, your family, your kids, your neighbors, um, people you agree with, people you disagree with. Um, there's always somebody within three feet or so. And in this age of Zoom, you know, I mean, we're, we're hundreds of miles apart. You're in Pennsylvania. I'm in Wisconsin. But I'm about a foot and a half from this Zoom screen <laughs> where, where you and I are talking together. So you and I right now have that three foot opportunity, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Like as you create more peace in yourself, you create more peace for others, but also as you create more peace for others, you create more peace for yourself. Like yeah. it's this, this, like you said, this interconnection, we're interdependent. I depend on so many others and, and yes. And I'll um, add one word to that. I think the word that we also need to weave in there is the word vulnerability mm -hmm. because you make yourself vulnerable by saying i need you yeah. you make yourself vulnerable by saying i can't do this by myself you make yourself vulnerable by saying i'm hurting i'm suffering i i need support um, and so many people in our culture have been taught not to go there yeah um, not to do that uh, because it makes them look weak or pathetic Oh, these are stupid ideas. <laughs> I don't want to lose anybody with technical language, but these are stupid ideas. <laughs> Dumb as a bucket of rocks. And we need to say, no, I am going to go there. I mean, one of the places I've gone with my writing over the years is I've explored in print my three deep dives into clinical depression, mm -hmm. which is something you're not supposed to talk about in public if you want a career. But I can, I'm 82 now, and I can tell you this, that of all the things I've written about in 10 books, democracy, education, community, leadership, I probably hear more about the things I've written about making my way through clinical depression and what kinds of community helped and what kinds of bogus community didn't help in those struggles. I hear more about that stuff than I do about anything else. Partly because so many people suffer from depression or live near or with someone who suffers from depression. They need to know that, that, that it is possible to survive and thrive. They also need to be comforted when someone just can't take it anymore. Um, I've written about how deeply I understand that. Um, they, they need to know that we can talk about these things in public and they need the sense of companionship. You know, none of us have answers to uh, the, the most serious issues that human beings face, but there's something about simply sharing these things with each other and, and being able to say at the end of the day, welcome to the human race. There's mm -hmm. something about that that is 
in itself the answer we're all looking for. And that answer is companionship on whatever path, somebody to celebrate our joys with, somebody to help us endure our suffering. That's the answer in itself. Mm. Yeah, that just like, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you, I'm here with you. Right. So are those the kinds of community what 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 were those kinds of types of community that helped and when you were suffering so much and what were the types of community that didn't help? Yeah, that's a core question for me and it's a matter of, it's something I think we, we ought to talk about more. Um, it's a long story, but I'll make it, I'll try to make it quite short. When I was depressed, uh, there were people who would engage in what I, what I came to call drive-by caring, mm. drive-by compassion. They would pop their head in to my house or my room, wherever I was staying, and they would say, oh, Parker, why are you so depressed? You're such a good person. You've helped so many people. You've written so many wonderful books. Why are you depressed? And that comment made me more depressed because anybody who's been there knows that you are feeling like a worm. You, you do not believe in yourself. Your, your sense of self-worth and value ha has been taken away, stolen from you by what's called the voice of depression, which has not a single good thing to say about you. We'll even deny that you ever did anything like they're talking about. And so the feeling they left me with was I've defrauded one more person and, and that, that leaves you more depressed. Others would come by and say, oh, Parker, you should get outside, not sit in this dark room. It's a beautiful day out there and the sun is shining and the flowers are blooming. That left me more depressed because I knew that it was beautiful out there intellectually. Uh, but I could not feel one atom of that beauty in my body. Mm. The warmth of the sun, your body goes dead in deep clinical depression. The warmth of the sun didn't get to me. The beauty of the flowers didn't touch me. And I came to think of these drive-by acts of caring as the acts of people who, who were actually afraid of me in this debilitated state I was in who treated depression as if it were a contagious disease, you know, against which you couldn't mask yourself. You just, if you were in its presence, then you were, you might get it yourself. Mm -hmm. The paradigm for, for the, the, the kind of caregiver that I treasure so much, I was at Pendle Hill at the time uh, for one of these depressions and um, there was an older man in the community, about 10 years older than I, who was a very intuitive person, uh, deeply perceptive and sensitive. And he asked me if it would be okay if he came to my house every afternoon around four o'clock um, while I sat in an easy chair in our living room and he massaged my feet while kneeling, you know, or in front wow. of me. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that men are not likely to offer each other, for one thing. It sounds extraordinarily rare, yeah. And, and 
And, and what was really amazing about this is that he somehow instinctively found the one place in my body where I could feel connected to another human being because nothing else was working for me. As I said earlier, my body was dead. How he knew that there might be some life in the soles of my feet or in my feet, I have no idea, but he did. And every afternoon he would come at four o'clock. He would, he was very quiet. He, he rarely said anything. He didn't give me pep talks. He didn't cheerlead. He accompanied me. He made me feel for 30, 40 minutes like I was capable of being in another human being's presence. And believe me, in depression, I did not feel able to be in other people's presence. I couldn't visit with anyone. I couldn't go to meetings. I couldn't do my job. Um, I had to tuck away. The, the world was full of knives. I could get out and ride my bike uh, for 10 or 15 minutes to get a little exercise, but it had to be on the bike, not walking, because walking, I might have run into someone who would want a conversation, and that would have killed me. I couldn't, I would have fled hmm. in terror, uh, because you just, I don't know, you know, how many people will understand this, but that depth of depression is not like being lost in the dark. It's like becoming the dark. If you're just lost in the dark, there's a difference between you and the darkness. And you can, you know, reach around that dark space you're in and maybe find a door handle or maybe find a, a window that might open or a shade that might pull up. Just get some kind of leverage on your situation, right? But if you've become the dark, there's no leverage at all. Uh, you're just there and you're it. Um, you have no agency over it. So this man was so simple and so quiet. He would occasionally say something like, I feel you getting stronger today, or I feel your struggle today. And, you know, usually he was right on. But more important, I came to trust him because he was not in there with advice, with fixes, with techniques mm. that just weren't going to work for me. And he was a light. His name was Bill Tabor. He died a few years ago. I always like to mention his name um, because he helped save my life. And um, I will tell you that having written about that maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago in a book called Let Your Life Speak, I've had therapists come to me and say, thank you for that story because I have a patient or two with whom I'm trying foot massage as a way to connect when wow. words when words just fail. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's part of a writer's privilege to share some of the most vulnerable things in your life and, and offer them up in ways that others find helpful to serve other people. Mm. I think that it will be helpful once more as it as it resonates out through this conversation. You are you are in that space in a deeply embedded community. Um, so you know, I'm just curious about this. Like, how how did you know you want you had that sense of like aloneness, but you were in this like intentional community with like 80 people around you. I mean, so 
yeah, I guess you had the one guy who came and he, you know, Bill, he came and, and rubbed your feet, but it must've been strange for, it must've been um, strange for everybody. And for you to, to kind of be in the situation where you're pulling back in a very enmeshed experience. You know, it was very strange. You're absolutely right. And there were people who didn't understand what was going on because that kind of thing kind of, you know, goes beyond the bounds of sort of what we're expected to understand, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're really not very well prepared for that because again, that's the shadow side experience in life that our culture doesn't want to talk about. Yeah. And, and that's especially true of, of men. Um, mm-hmm. One of, one of the, there's a number of fine books on depression out there. One of my my favorite title is a book about male depression, which is titled, I Don't Want to Talk About It, <laughs> which is just perfect because that's the male motto about all kinds of things that make us vulnerable, more vulnerable than we think we should be. It's like, I don't want to talk about it. Um, you know, if I had a nickel for every time the male partner in a relationship said that to the woman who's trying to figure out what's going on, um, I'd be rich. But uh so I don't want to talk about it is uh, is a screen to be to be broken through and it was very tough in that community even though it was filled with sensitive understanding people partly because and here's something a lot of folks will resonate I had a job uh, and the community depended on me and somebody had to do that job for a while and I had to suffer you know the humiliation of having of saying to the community I can't do that job right now and again, I don't know how many people are familiar with depression, but one of the one of the one of the things that happens in depression is that you know, as part of my job, I would sit and counsel with students, adult students from eighteen to eighty-five, who came to me with the issues they were wrestling with, and everybody who came there had issues they were wrestling with. Um, and I would be sitting in a conversation in the early phases of my depression before I figured out what was happening and started reaching for the kind of help I needed. I would be sitting in one of those conversations and I'd suddenly realize that I hadn't heard anything this person had said for the last several minutes. Mm -hmm. And they would have stopped and I would have, the signal was coming. Now it's your turn to say something, Parker. And I would be holding the question, what, what should I say? I have no idea what was just said to me. That's, that's you know, a pretty serious level of dysfunctionality, right? So, you know, you d- devise a stratagem like, uh, could you repeat that point again, maybe in different language? I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. But it, it was just a survival strategy for the moment. And eventually, I realized, I'm, I just have to be honest with folks and say, I'm in a place where I can't do this for a while. And they gave me a a three-month leave uh, during which I was just insulated, protected, you know, from all of the demands of of that job. And it was was interesting, Hunter. At first, it was humiliating. Oh, my gosh, 80 people sort of know pretty intimately what I'm going through. And, And I don't like that. And then, as time went on, I became comfortable with that fact that 80 people knew and they hadn't thrown me 
into the outer darkness. You know, mm -hmm. they hadn't mm -hmm. they hadn't rejected me. That's community. To yeah. to experience yourself accepted, even at the extremities of your life. I mean, we all reach these extremities in one form or another. And our great fear is that if anybody knew, they would consign us to the outer darkness. They yeah. We would lose friends. We would lose our job. We'd lose everything. We'd lose reputation. We, we'd lose image. That's why I don't want to talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, well... Here was a, an experience of grace where an entire community uh, accepted me at such a, a human level that they, they were glad to give me space and then they welcomed me back. Like, and, yeah. I guess this is like the, the power, you were saying of vulnerability. I can imagine you, earlier you talked about the power, like, vulnerability is how important it is but then i can imagine a listener like listening to your conversation saying well i don't know maybe this vulnerability wasn't working out so well for him right you know but um but but that vulnerability is this sense of of really being known i guess in a safe space right we have to be vulnerable we allow ourselves to be seen in places that are safe yeah and i think part of the journey in life is to keep looking for people with whom you can have that safety because you can't have it everywhere. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when a man named Thomas Eagleton ran for vice president of the United States. Um, I can't remember whether it was George McGovern or Gene McCarthy who was running for president. And it was discovered that Eagleton, who was a senator from Missouri, had been treated in a mental hospital for depression. And he, he just had to quit the race because in, in, a, in the America of that time, being treated for depression was not like recovering from cancer. It was like a black mark on your career that doomed you, you know, to political ignominy. Um, so, but to your point about vulnerability, vulnerability is always a risk, but here's the deal, I think. Um, millions of people walk around feeling that there is no compassion for them anywhere in the universe, that nobody sees them as they truly are. That's a very common human feeling, and it's mm -hmm. a source of pain. And I understand it. I'm not judging it. We, part of our job is, is to see other people more clearly and to let them know that we see them in an appreciative and, and holistic way. But how, how in heaven's name are we ever going to be seen if we don't make ourselves vulnerable to being seen? Mm -hmm. How do you expect to be accepted for your flaws and not just applauded for your strengths if you never let your flaws be known? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, you're making a bargain with life, but I, to me, it's, it's when people talk about courage, for example, the courage to stand by our convictions, our deepest values and beliefs, and how hard that is. My, my response for a long time now has been, yes, it's hard, but how about dying eventually with a sense that you never stood up for your convictions or your values or beliefs? Which is harder, you know, to, to live a half-life or to live your full life 
in, in the face of those risks. I don't think anybody should take risks that they're that they're not aware of, that they haven't thought about, that they haven't, you know, measured their own capacity to hold, and the downside consequences of it all. But when all is said and done, I mean, I'm as I said earlier, I'm 82, and I can envision the end of my life a lot easier than I could 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I can't imagine a sadder way to die than with the realization that I never showed up in this world during all those years as I truly am. Mm. That would be very sad, I think. That would be a sense of having wasted the one opportunity I have to embody whatever it is I've got on the face of this earth. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. So just kind of as we kind of come to the end of this conversation a little bit, I'm just thinking about this idea of this community. You had this beautiful community in Pendle Hill, you know, but it's rare. And, you know, I've made this choice to like, I live in a community where I, I know all my neighbors, like where it's, it's, it's kind of like a funky little place, but that's really rare. And yet we know how important it is, that sense of like, now I know having lived in this community for 17 years, like how valuable it is to be able to go out every single day, walk the streets and have people say, hey, Hunter, how you doing? Ba ba ba. Like, you'd be amazed like how valuable that is, right? Like to just have people know you and see you. But most people live in places where they may not even know their next door neighbors. So do you have any um, ideas for us to help us create some of that and cultivate yeah. that? I'm glad you asked because part of my mission over all these years, I mean, I left Pendle Hill when I was 40, 46 years old, I guess. Yeah, I was there 11 years from 35 to 46 years of age. And, um, you know, I returned to a world where that kind of community isn't isn't something you easily step into. And if you do, you maybe join a spiritual group of some sort that meets once a week and, and is a sort of a pale imitation of what of the rich 24-7 life I had at Pendle Hill. So I had to start working on that. And I think what I've come to pretty clearly is that community is not about big numbers. And I think we we, we make a mistake if we think about it that way. It, it You can have this sense of community with a couple of other people in your life. What it requires, I think, Hunter, is a kind of intentionality about how you want to hold or conduct those relationships. What, what kind of covenant you have with these two or three people to be present to each other in a particular way. One of the things I've done in the course of my life is to establish a nonprofit that's now 25 years old called the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, there's a website where people can check it out. We now have 300 facilitators all over this country and around the world teaching this way of being together in smaller circles to people. We call them circles of trust. But, we, but those circles are formed by a kind of intentionality. For I'll give you a quick example. 
when we come together to explore an issue that somebody has or that a number of somebody's in the circle have, we, we tell people that the fundamental ground rule that we're going to follow as we explore this issue is no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. No fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. Well, these are smart people, so someone will always say, wait a minute, you've just taken away the only things we know how to do, the only things we like to do. What in heaven's name are we going to do? And our response to that is, well, because we've just taken these away from you, and we have a facilitator who's going to make sure that none of that happens, what we've taken away from you are all of the things that we, that we do to each other traditionally in normal society that block us from taking a deeper inner journey to find out what our truth is, and that block us from forming deeper relationships with each other where we are truly known to each other. So this, these ground rules that forbid these conventional activities are, are going to require you to listen more deeply to each other. And then we add another practice, and there's lots of practices, I'll just name these two. We add another practice, which isn't prohibitive, but it says what we can do with each other as we speak is when somebody has expressed their concern, their issue, their struggle, we can ask that person if they're willing to receive questions. We can ask them honest, open questions. And honest, open questions turn out to be a high and demanding art, um, because a lot of us are, are, have a tendency to ask questions that aren't really questions. They're little advices in disguise. So if, I were, if you were to share a problem with me, and I were to ask, have you thought about seeing a therapist? <laughs> <laughs> That's not an honest, open question. No. <laughs> it's really a, it's a sneaky way of me saying. That, that's advising. <laughs> that's advising. Or have you read a book, this book? Or have you tried this diet? Or, yeah, yeah. you know. But if I were to say to you, well, has anything like that ever happened in your life before? And you were to say, yeah, and here's the story. And then I were to say, um, was there anything, as you look back on that, passage of your life, is there anything that you learned at that time that might be useful now? And you start rummaging around in your own experience and come up with some things that are true for you because you know them experientially. That's a different conversation. And, and the kind of conversation we're reaching for is not one where you tell me something and then I get to tell you what to do about it or what a smart person would do about it, such as me. Um, instead, I'm asking the kind of questions that give you an opportunity to have a deeper conversation with yourself. See, this takes us back to those Quaker twin, twin principles of the inner teacher and community. So we're in community now, going through this process. I'm following the ground rules. You're exploring your own issue at a deeper level because of my honest, open questions. And you're in a deepening conversation with your inner teacher. So there it is in a two-person nutshell, right? It doesn't take 80 people. It, it doesn't take 
a huge amount of skill, although it takes discipline, intentionality, practice. For you to have two or three people in your life who can do this kind of thing with each other on a kind of round-robin basis, whenever anybody's got something they're wrestling with, or just as, let's check in, let's keep up with each other, even when the irons aren't in the fire. Um, and, and it, you know, there, there are a set of definable procedures. I wrote about them in a book called A Hidden Wholeness, where I actually spell out the operating code of these circles of trust at the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, and, you know, there, there you have it. Uh, you can do it at home. <laughs> I love this so much, Parker, because my mindful parenting members who are listening will hear something real, some really familiar things and yeah. everything you just said about no fixing, saving, advising, and correcting. And, um, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that that would, I want to have a conversation like that soon. I think that's really beautiful. Well, I could talk to you more. There's so much more you could share, but I want to respect your time. This is beautiful. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? Well, um, yeah, thank you, Hunter. I've enjoyed it a lot. Uh, so first of all, the, I run a pretty active Facebook author page, um, which, and you can just search under professional pages or however Facebook does that for Parker J, middle initial J, Palmer. Um, you can also go to um, the Center for Courage and Renewal. I think it's www.couragerenewal.org, or you can just Google Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, there are lots of other places on the web where you'll find my, you can Google my name and find stuff popping up. One source that a lot of people seem to use um, is On Being, the public radio program with Krista Tippett, where if you go to their uh, search bar and put in my name, you'll come up with a number of articles and several interviews on, on air with Krista um, over, over the years. And then, of course, all the books are at Amazon. Again, just search my name or at IndieBound, uh, the website for the independent bookstores in your area. Parker, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your presence and your wisdom sharing it with me and, and sharing your story, you know, really personal and the vulnerability, it's, it's, I know that um, that openness is really helpful to, to many of many people. So I know it will have some ripple effects and, well, and I, it's much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Hunter. It's been a joy to be on with you and blessings with your work as well. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you made it through the beautiful conversation with Parker Palmer. I think that, you know, it's so important for us to just take uh, this wonderful perspective that he offers and just bring it, bring it into our lives too. So I hope this episode has helped you. If you like it, of course, please do share it with your friends, share it with your family. Like word of mouth is just the best way. It's how this podcast has grown and had 
over a million and a half downloads now. It's really amazing. So thank you for any time you've shared it or mentioned it or shouted out. It really makes a huge difference and it helps people find these conversations that are so meaningful. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening, my friend. I'm so glad you were here. I'm so glad we could connect. And I can't even wait to tell you what we got next week. We've got an amazing best of simply the best episodes from 2021. And you might be surprised to see what's on there. We pulled some great snippets from those episodes. So make sure you listen to that. that that's a great one to share with anyone who's looking for a new podcast. This, this would be a good little sampler to share that's coming next week so oh my god the new year is almost here ah i hope you have a great week i hope you have your kids don't drive you absolutely bananas if you're home alone with them in confined spaces for long periods of time and i hope you have moments of peace and joy and contentment and all that that brings so thank you thank you so much for listening my friend i can't wait to talk to you soon namaste Say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I had this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it? who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside mindfulparentingcourse.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down, 
Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.